Welcome to The Future Built Smarter, a podcast in which IMEG engineers discuss innovative and trend-setting building and infrastructure design with architects, owners, and others in the AEC industry. I'm your host, Joe Payne, and with me today is my co-host, Mike Lawless, IMEG's Director of Innovation. Mike, how you doing? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Glad you're here as well, Mike. And today we're presenting one in a series of podcasts on sustainability strategies of the future. In our first episode, we talked about embodied carbon in building materials, and today we will be examining embodied carbon in MEP equipment. Our guest and expert for the series is Adam McMillan, IMEG's Director of Sustainability. Welcome to the podcast, Adam. Hey, Joe. Really glad to be here. Adam, how about starting today's discussion with an overview of how MEP equipment fits into the overall embodied carbon of a building? Sure. So in our last uh, episode, we talked about embodied carbon and mainly focused on structures and architecture and envelope, um, which all take energy to make transport and erect, right? And so that's that's the amount of carbon that we're trying to capture, quantify, and eliminate. So um, naturally, as engineers, hey, we put a lot of stuff into the building too, and it's got a lot of steel in it. It comes from all over the world. It's obviously got a carbon footprint. So this next frontier has is to dive into what's the impact of the MEP equipment. Also, what's the impact of the refrigerant, which actually has a huge footprint in terms of carbon and how do we start to eliminate that and you know it's this one has lagged a little bit it seems like a natural fit since we're already dealing with it on the operational side but MEP is tough because it's all those equipment's got a lot of parts and pieces and they get shipped from all over the world and assembled think about work how a car is made for example and all that goes into that so it's just if you're going to track every transportation mile for every piece of equipment it's just it's just a lot more daunting so um, but that's that's basically what we'd be looking at. Gotcha. Mike, I'm sure you've got some questions for Adam. So I think, Adam, what, what we're saying here is that in the past, we've looked at mechanical equipment, chillers, air handling units, and we've looked at efficiency and first cost and analyzed, you know, what's the best, you know, what's the best value, you know, different different owners have different different opinions there. But I think what we're saying here is we're going to add another layer of, which one of these chillers or air handling units has the the lowest em- embodied carbon as well, and that becomes part of the analysis? Yeah, I think the idea with a lot of these movements that are out there in general, like if we can first only quantify it and make it known to the industry, then people will find ways to reduce it. And we think about manufacturers that want to be competitive, as long as we can quantify it, now it's something for them to compete on. So step one is just let's get everyone to break down what's in their equipment, understand how much carbon, embodied carbon is in it. Um, and then step two is to say, okay, now we kind of know chiller average, at an average 500 ton chiller, the embodied carbon is this much per ton. That's the industry average. Okay, manufacturer A, what can you produce yours for? And now if they want to reduce it, now they're going to be prioritizing recycled content, shorter, you know, made in the USA um, parts, for example, to reduce transportation. So there's a lot of trickle down benefits that can come from that. In addition to what manufacturers definitely want to hear is that an owner say, look, all right, now that we know the data is out there, I want my MEP system to have embodied carbon at X level, you know, top tier level. And once the data is in place, now that can be asked for and then delivered. Um, by the manufacturers. 
do you, do you have a sense of the delta in embodied carbon between similar products? I mean, you know, this apples to apples, air handlers or, or chillers, what kind of what what kind of variation there is right now between between those products? Absolutely not. <laughs> There's zero data. There was one environmental product declaration, EDP for a chiller, that at least the working groups that I'm on have been aware of. And that's it, because uh, it's a huge investment and it's a lot to track down and the demand hasn't been there. So there are some general thoughts on what it could be per ton, but that variation is not out there. And that's part of the, you know, that's part of the where we're at right now, what we're trying to work on. So this is really something that's in its infancy where for structures, concrete, steel, you know, mass timber products, projects, you can more easily measure the embodied carbon. But in this environment, like you said, there's a lot of a lot of parts and pieces that, that go into each each one of these um, you know, pieces of mechanical equipment. So I guess as we're, you know, as as we're doing projects now, how do we how do what's your suggestion on how we take this into account? You know, what's actionable in the more near term as they're starting to quantify the embodied carbon for each piece of equipment? Yeah, so two things. So um, refrigerants, there is a lot of data, and that is probably the largest embodied carbon component MEP equipment. Now, some will say that's actually operational carbon, so you can debate it, but refrigerant selection that you use is has a huge impact in the amount of leakage. So step one is get your refrigerants right. Um, step two, we know that if we had a original design was a thousand ton chiller, but we made the building more efficient, so we only need 800 ton chiller. Now we know we've dropped embodied carbon by 20% and the operational carbon by X percent. So that's definitely um, step two. Uh, the other piece that's happening right now, and, and this has kicked up a little more in Europe than us, but I'm on a working group with a carbon leadership forum and we're all talking about this. So all the leading MVP firms that people like myself and sustainability are all working together to start to get it together. So. The first step, I think, is we're going to ask the manufacturers that we don't need a full like certification, but if you could just break down the material list of everything in your equipment and give that to us, we'll quantify it. And now we can start to compare because, you know, we're data nerds. So we'll take the step to at least if they can give us the breakdowns, we'll do it first. And then then the second piece, transportation and all the assembly, all that other stuff is that's going to take a certification. But if we just know what's in it, that's a good step for us. I mean, it definitely sounds like an engineering effort. You know, let's take some let's take some products that have hundreds of parts each and try and figure out how much embodied carbon is. But I think it's it's an important step. Uh, I think just thinking through this, Adam, I think the kind of the the simpler steps: one, good design practice, efficient buildings impacts operational carbon and embodied carbon both. And then two, it sounds like if you can get the refrig the right refrigerants and you when you look at structural systems, you think about, you know, timber or, or steel that you've really started to take a, a significant, achieve a significant reduction in embodied carbon just with a few simple steps to start with. Yeah, I, I think you put a group in a room and think, what could we knock off just thinking about it for, you know, actually thinking about it when we design and yeah, you get that structure right, thin up the concrete slabs, get the uh, MEP downsized and um, even electrified for the operational side of carbon. And you're almost, you know, most of the way there, just right off the bat. Hey, Adam, I know in the past you've written about um, how uh, a lot of owners are putting uh, an EUI requirement or goal in their 
RFPs. Do you foresee a day coming when owners will do the same thing with uh, embodied carbon? Yeah, it's the only way it's going to happen. Um, it's such an investment for the manufacturers and, and the manufacturers, they have thousands in their product line, right? So where do they, which one do I certify first, right? They're going to need a pretty clear market signal in order to do that. And we're talking with owners within these working groups that are stepping up and saying, just tell us what do we need to ask for first? Um, so part of the working group that I'm helping to lead is actually trying to align this so really as engineers, we can say, this is the stuff that we think has the biggest footprint. We're gonna, we think we should all start with these items and get the embodied carbon data out there for them. So if we can put that out there and tell the owners, look, in your next RFP, ask for the embodied carbon for these things, that tells the manufacturers, oh, I need to go get the data for that. And really the only barrier here in the beginning is the data. So manufacturers want to hear the owner commitment before they invest. So once that's in place, then they'll get the EPDs, then we can specify it. Um, and then the contractors can select equipment based on it and deliver it and it will all work. But I, I feel pretty strongly that MEP community are going to be the ones to lead that. And, and within the next year, you're going to see some pretty good stuff coming out on MEP embodied carbon 2040 commitment that's in the works um, that this is going to really think go a long way to launch this. And Adam, I think, you know, the embodied carbon is definitely the, it feels like the beginning of a journey and there's some, some really smart things we can do now, but as this progresses and we continue to, to do better at, you know, as an industry with embodied carbon, if we think bigger, you know, beyond the, the building itself and, you know, what, what does that, where does that lead us? What are those impacts, you know, globally that we think we see from this, this sort of initiative? We build buildings for 200 year life, right? So if you're thinking about embodied carbon of buildings life, we're going to design that different. Um, I, I would love to see this throwaway culture, go back all the way back to the farm. We didn't waste a, a thing on that farm. And there was a pile of scrap from every piece of equipment we couldn't use anymore that got built <laughs> into new stuff. Um, but today, think about a dishwasher, think about a washing machine. If we don't pay maintenance anymore, we um, just buy a new one, right? And it's a huge piece of steel, just buy a new one because it's cheaper than it is to maintain it. So you think about a global impact, if we really think about embodied carbon, we're just going to start stop digging stuff out of the ground only to throw it away in 10 years. Um, and it's crazy. We're doing that with buildings now and buildings are huge. So step one would be reverse that trend. Let's not think about a 50-year building. Let's think about a 100-year building. Let's think about a 30-year MEP equipment. We can get to that stage because owners understand that their life cycle of their costs will go down because of this investment. That would be huge, right? Let's, let's not ship in a granite countertop from China that has all this embodied carbon because it looks nice. Let's, let's reinvest it in a thing that's going to take it off of our books. Um, and, and then even one step further, right? So what's happening now outside of this is it's starting to become pretty clear that the amount of carbon you have on your books as a, as a company, as an Amazon, as a engine manufacturer, whatever, is going to be a liability in the future from a climate change perspective, from a dollars, from a regulation perspective. So we're doing the job of getting all this quantified so that all these companies will see this big, huge number as a risk to their business and then all the trickle down impacts of reducing it can come from that so that was a long-winded answer but uh i i i think it's huge and i think buildings are the biggest impact of all the stuff 
I don't know, iPhones might come in second because <laughs> there's so many of them and there's so much in there. But, but it's just, it's, it's an exciting time to be in the field because this is, this is the global future in my, in my mind. Well, I, I think the other thing that's exciting to me too is as engineers, a lot of engineering started out on the farm raising food and it's, you know, how do we bring that practical engineering sense back around to buildings and ensure that we're really doing the, the best thing long-term, you know, for the environment and for our communities and for the people in them. Yeah. I love talking to farmers because, you know, typically, and, and I family of farmers, I'm actually going there this Labor Day weekend to hang out and generally pretty conservative in nature. But if you get to talking about like solar PV or you talk about these things that just, no, that makes total sense. I mean, they are huge sustainability advocates because they know it impacts what they do. And um, yeah, I love it. I appreciate having that background and I love working with people that have the same mindset and I'd love to see that go first full circle. All right, Mike and, and, and Adam, thanks for another great discussion today uh, in this series. Listeners who want to listen to the first uh, episode in this can uh, follow us on any app uh, they use to listen to podcasts. Just search for imegcorp.com or The Future Built Smarter, and you can find this previous episode as well as others that imeg has recorded. Our next episode in this series will take a look at cold climate electrification. And so uh, we'd invite you all to tune back in for that. And in the meantime, from all of us at IMEG, thank you for listening and take care. <music>